Hello, Michael here. As you probably know, our podcasts are recorded at a distance, myself in Warwickshire and Rupert in the south of France. And while we always aim to achieve the best audio quality, sometimes, particularly when our guests are in a third location, it's not always possible to maintain that control. At the time of the interview, we were not aware that Dr. Schultz-Palsen's recording was below standard, and so I hope you'll forgive us for the less-than-perfect audio quality on her channel and that it doesn't spoil your enjoyment. With that, on with the show. Hello, I'm Michael Bott. And I'm Rupert Soskin. And this is a Standing With Stones podcast special. This podcast is only made possible by monthly donations from our listeners who've supported us through patreon.com. You can become one of our patrons for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash standingwithstones. A few weeks ago, in the middle of February 2019, we began seeing links being shared on our Twitter feed and our Facebook group that led to articles in the mainstream media and even some other places that should have known better that had headlines such as was Stonehenge inspired by the prehistoric French? Stonehenge mystery solved. Scientists uncover origin of ancient stone monoliths. Ancient monoliths like Stonehenge may have spread from northwestern France. And my favourite, prehistoric sailors may be responsible for Stonehenge. <laughs> it didn't take long to find out that most of these articles were, in one way or another, misrepresenting and at worst completely mangling a serious, deep and very painstaking piece of academic research by Dr. Bettina Schultz-Palsen of the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. In a book published in 2015 and in a recent short paper, Dr. Schultz-Palsen described how the radiocarbon dates taken from nearly two and a half thousand megalithic and pre-megalithic sites in Western Europe show a radiation of a megalithic culture in the 5th and 4th millennia BC from northwest France, and in particular, coastal Brittany, down the Atlantic seaboard and around into the Mediterranean. Now, despite the fact that most of the mainstream articles and some specialist publications referenced Stonehenge, it didn't take long to realise that the results in Bettina Schultz-Palsen's work had very little, if anything at all, to do with the sarsen stones of Stonehenge on Salisbury Plain. Now, Rupert and I have already made our own attempts to correct any false impressions that may have been given in the media, but how better to clear up any misunderstandings than to talk to the source of the work herself? And so it is with great pleasure we say welcome to the Standing With Stones podcast, Dr. Bettina Schultz-Palsen. Thank you for being with us. Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me. We're thrilled to have you here, actually, Bettina. It's uh, it, it's lovely to uh, to be able to talk at length to, uh, to the source of the work. I think to start with, tell us about your work and what it was that really set you off on this crazily ambitious path. Yeah, if you say ambitious, you may be right. <laughs> uh, I started maybe 10, 11 years ago with this project. Mm -hmm. And when I started, colleagues like, for example, Mike Parker Pearson said, it's a great thing, but it's in incredible much. It's a huge project. And other colleagues said, uh, you can't do this. You're crazy. This is <laughs> a couple of projects and once and not as a as the only person because the medias were also writing often that I had a team. 
I had no team. I was all by myself. And wow. I also, the article is written by myself and it's not a research group. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So what you need is a lot of time and passion. And uh, did you want as you the will? You need the will to go through such a project. Does uh, people saying, no, you can't do this, provide some of that will, do you think? <laughs> yeah, as my, but really, they said to me, you're crazy. I said, yeah. heard this a couple of times. But uh, it is, uh, I'm a person, if somebody's saying this to me, then I do it anyhow. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm really stubborn, but this you need to be when you're a researcher. So I started ten, 10 years ago, you know, to compile all this data. And it was not only to compile the data, you need also to travel a lot, you need to see the places, you need to feel the landscapes. It's as you cannot work just theoretically on such a large topic. You need really to go I need to I needed to talk a lot to researchers and yeah. to local researchers so how far mm. they have been coming in their research. And I needed to go a lot to the literature and to excavation reports because uh, what I have been doing is compiling as i was compiling all the c14 dates but i needed to have also a lot of information from the stratigraphy and from the cultural material found in the graves and from the burial rites the architecture yeah and to get this you need to go through the literature and you need to go through i think i think that's a really important thing for people to understand uh, the scale of the work involved in order to come to in a, a reasonable conclusion or to bring forth a, a reasonable hypothesis. And that's the trouble with the mainstream media thing, that it tends to trivial, trivialise what has taken years of res research, I guess. Yeah, but you know, yeah, I can maybe explain a little bit how this happened with the media, because mm. it was, after a while, a self-going thing, you know. Uh, it started, uh, you know, uh, the study was published uh, in PNAS, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science of the United States of America. And they did a <clears throat> press release themselves. And oh, uh, yeah. it's working like this, that before also the article gets some kind of press embargo, and before they release it, uh, journalists who are registering got the possibility to see the article, read the short press release, and to contact the researchers. And I had in the beginning first uh, the really uh, um, serious journals and magazines. So the first who were phoning me were the New York Times. They wanted to have an interview. Then I had journals like Science, like Smithsonian Magazine. And this was a great experience because they really took time. They talked a long time with me. They were interested. And in the end, they were handing me over the text to look go through it and check yeah. if there is um, mistakes in the content because it's easily done that you make it out of 2,000 years, you make 200 years. And I saw this mostly very quick. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of press agencies after a while who were phoning me and they were spreading um, the news. And I realized there are some more serious than others. And it was really interesting to see the difference because some were not really listening. They just were writing the story already. Also, I had one from a big big uh, channel and maybe we say not the name but it has to do with fake news <laughs> and it was exactly <laughs> yeah. them who were responsible for the sailor yes, um, i think the we know where you're going yes <laughs> you know i first was thinking not to give them an interview then i was uh, discussing this with american colleagues i say do it because a lot of people are just listening to this channel decided to do it in the end the reporter said to me i have been writing already this article and my editor already was 
acknowledging it. Also, so it doesn't matter what I said. They had been writing anyhow the next days. Sailors are responsible yes. for Stonehenge. <laughs> and then I had to write my colleague Mike Parker Pearson um, yeah. email where I was writing. I do apologize. I'm not responsible for it, but you know these people all got very much humor. Stonehenge. Yes, I, I, I think I think uh, I think Mike Parker <clears throat> Pearson is uh, well accustomed to taking some flack and having his words <laughs> mangled in the press. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, but in the end, we said as long as people, as long as it's going into a discussion and people. Are Talking yeah. about it, it's it's okay. You have to take that's, it with humor. It's just well, the sailor thing, a, you know. I yeah. said I said all the time to people, we have no idea about the technology, and yeah. especially you know we got boat engravings in Brittany and the graves, and there are no sails. We have no indications for sails yet. They're riding sailors, you know. Yes, the same yes. article that uh, that I read introduced them as um, a, hunt, a hunter gatherer culture. I was yes. thinking, well, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm to gather a sailors then. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, I can a little bit spoil. This is not so far away from um, what we think today. And yeah. um, in the end, also, our research is going into this direction. So yeah. um, it's not so. You will see in the next years what is coming out. A lot of astonishing things are waiting for us. Oh, excellent! Fantastic. Well, we'll we'll um, we'll we'll get onto that maybe a little later, shall we? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, for us, Bettina, the, the initial response from many people was, "What about sites like Gebekli Tepe? What about the Ring of Brodga? Uh, you know, these sites that either were thought to be older, or some like Gebekli Tepe that we know are significantly older." So, what's your response to that? How do you see those? Uh, as fitting in, whether they're completely separate or do, or how do they fit in for you? Also, the first is older, the second is younger, easily yes. answered. And Gebekli Tepe is around <clears throat> 5,000, even a little bit more, because there we also got not so many C14 dates yet. Um, but it's many thousand years older and it is in no standing in no relation to the European megaliths, like there is so many megaliths worldwide, you know, we find them all over the world, from India, Korea, everywhere you find megaliths. And many are not connected or not in a relation to the European megaliths. But the Ring of Brodka certainly is, you know, and uh, it's dating around 3000, but it's, um, you know, uh, it's it's a little bit later than Brittany. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. It's a wonderful site, you know. It's, <laughs> it's the Orkneys are with uh, one of my favorite places yes i have one of my strongest mem megalith memories of that holds true for us as as well um orkney is certainly one of our favorite places that's uh, certainly well. true I, I think it was it was a lot to do with when when people see sites that are even though they might not have been dated uh they might not have been officially carbon dated or what have you but there are sites as you say around the world there are there are, there are megalithic sites everywhere um, and some which are, uh, so some of the Turkish sites, for example, that are, uh, and Siberian sites that are thought to be older. So um, a lot of people, it was that initial perception of what was coming out of the media was that uh, I think some people were reading because of the way the uh, journalists were putting it out there that, that you were saying that all megalithic culture started in Brittany. And so it's that distinction of 
uh, how do we separate uh, or, or how do you separate, you know, in your own mind, what's your perception of uh, of whether some of these sites uh, evolved completely independently or whether there was a single route that uh, disseminated in different directions? Also, until now, we have no indication that they're related to the European megaliths. But uh, you know what I thought in the beginning of my research? that I can confirm the independent regions, also independent emergence for at least yeah, some of yeah. the regions. So I was completely surprised about my own results. So uh, now I say today I'm not astonished about anything <laughs> anymore. So what do we know we have to do more research on a lot of topics. And That quite surprises me that you, you, you expected to confirm one of the yes. established um, um, theories mm. that at least um, for some of the regions, you know. Yeah, yeah, mm. that they that they arose individually in 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 the yeah. European sphere. You're talking about, yeah. Yeah, as I'm talking, you know, I do my research on Europe. It's, yeah, it's enough to do yeah. for uh, many <laughs> lifetimes. <laughs> Maybe you know, I would okay. love to do research all around the place of megaliths. I love megaliths, but it's just you know, it's very good to a little bit focus. So as in my paper was it also on European megaliths and uh, um, people who are listening now, it's also, it's open access, it's free downloadable and I try to write it in a way that mm, even non-archaeologists mm. or non-statisticians can understand it. So it's possible to read it and make yourself an own picture. It's interesting that um, you know before radiocarbon dating, the prevailing theory, of course, since the turn of the century, was that everything came from the East, that mm -hmm. uh, all this uh, wisdom and culture uh, mm -hmm. permeated from the East, and it was only after radiocarbon uh, uh, dating uh, sort of um, nailed a few dates that the, uh, the individual arising of culture at separate places within Europe mm -hmm. was, was favoured. But it's interesting that the previous meme, the one that everything came from the East, still is an existing thought in many people's minds. Yeah, you know, it's, it, uh, it, it lingers it was, on. It is was the, the so-called zeitgeist of this time. Yes, ex, yeah, ex oriente yeah. lux, you know, writing, mm. mathematics. Yeah, I mean, a lot yeah. of uh, interesting innovations are coming, <clears throat> actually, yeah. from the Orient. So yeah. <clears throat> everything was as it was much focused on this region. But, mm. you know, and then in the 70s, also, it was Colin Renfrew who coined mostly this, uh, yes. theory on the independent emergence and this oh, was yeah. so revolutionary for this time yes. and when I was a student I, thought, I liked very much uh, Renfrew's uh, work and theories sure. and I was nearly a little bit sad when <laughs> I figured <laughs> out <laughs> because he was a hero for me when I was a student yeah. I thought oh no he was wrong well, <laughs> but you know but, he was on, yeah. on, on the basement of this data he had available Yes. knowledge she had at this time it was a reasonable uh, conclusion so yeah we just have but, more data today we know more and yeah. yeah and the numbers don't lie yes the um, okay. numbers are lying sometimes it's <laughs> 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 the game the game of science you know yeah but, one thing that leapt out for me uh, bettina was that in your recent paper you didn't uh, make mention of the trade in jadeite stone um, which um, I, I know is one of the threads that you try to uh, pull in in the in the book as to what the purpose, what the cause of this seafaring 
um, uh, was. Um, can you can you say a little bit about why you considered the trade in jadeite to be so important in in the spread of megalithic culture in in Europe? I, I think it's more the the trade of calais of various kind. You know, it's the other green stone. Jadeite, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But jadeite is also jadeite is the the material that axes were produced from. Oh, I see. Yeah. And there is quick another funny story. One of the reporters yes, was yes, always yes. understanding X or not axes. It was yes. the one with the fake news, and I could correct this one. So he wanted to write about jadeite X in the end. Yeah. Said in yeah, the head yeah. news. You know. Okay, just George decide. <laughs> you know. <clears throat> Jadeite uh, is coming from northern Italy, and it's all coming from the same source. And there, I think, the trade went over the rivers. That's a really important yes. uh, distinction. Thank you. Yeah. And the Calais Savaris is even greener than jadeite. It's really shiny ah, green. Yeah, you yeah. see such a pearly seed from far away. It's beautiful, this material. And there were just about uh, 10, 15 sources or indication for sources all over Europe. And then most of them on the, are on the West Iberian Peninsula. And there will soon come a book out, also in Archeo Press, about Calais and uh, Variskit trade. And I was doing the, the Radiocom, as I was doing the analysis with the Radiocom dates, and to get also a little bit of temporality, also the timeline for this uh, Greenstone trade. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was uh, in my paper focusing really just on the C14 dates because it had been too much. You cannot, mm-hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a second paper. You cannot yeah. do put everything in one paper because you have to because it's so new. You have to explain a little bit. I see. Bit yeah, I see. Yeah, but there is also indicating a lot. Um, also, with the provenance analysis, the French colleagues did that uh, um, the Calais or the Varis kit from the beads found in the uh, Britain Grace, as in uh, in Brittany, in, yeah. the, in the Bay of Morbihan, it's all coming from one source, and this is in Ekin and Sola in Andalusia. Yes. So this is a sure indication for long-distance trade, and as it yes. looks over the seaway here also. So how how would you explain the uh, the importance of uh, uh, one of the things that really surprised me actually when we were um, uh, reading through the paper and your book uh, was the uh, the importance of of Sardinia, which seems to be peripheral to those trade routes. How how does Sardinia come to uh, it? it come to fit into uh, to it for you at, at such an early date that's yeah yeah you know I've, yeah. I, I tried to find a solution also uh, but um, you know we will know much more with more research we're doing when we try to define these linkages so if I really know who's laying in the Sardinian graves how are they related Mm-hmm. Are these um, emigrants or are these traders or yes. is this local, uh, is this indigenous societies who are picking up this? Building tradition, when we know this, we can say more, but I think also here it could uh, be in connection as it is. We have these uh, small appearances on Sardinia, but also on Corsica, so far on the north coast, really, also not yeah. too far away from the sea. And um, I guess this could also hang together with the prospection for Greenstone. I mean, we have also uh, these small megalithic uh, occurrences or clusters in northern Italy, where I think this has to do with the jadeite, like you said. There are not so many, you know, but with the jadeite trade. So maybe people were really prospecting for greenstone. What I remember on Sardinia is also a source for Calais, for Varisket. It's one of the 
the few mines we have from there or the few uh, sources we have um, from the Mediterranean. Yeah. So yeah. I think people were very movable and looked into searching trading yeah. connections, trading yeah. roads. And I mean, it's an area that fascinates uh, Rupert and I. I think ever since we uh, we climbed up um, the, to the Pike of Stickle and visited the uh, Jadeite Axe Factory up there yeah. mm-hmm. uh, in uh, in Cumbria, mm. near the Great Cumbrian Circles, we've mm. been absolutely fascinated by the idea of ne- Neolithic trade and what the drivers were. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's an ongoing conversation for us. Uh, sorry, next question. You, you have a, another question, Rupert, I do believe. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, this is a, a, an underlying niggle that, um, the thing is that, we, uh, okay, so across Europe, there are roughly 35,000. Um, there are more, much more. It's yeah. just a rough, uh, 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 you know, uh, rough estimation because we don't know really how much there are. They no. start not to count more exact. So I think it's double as much or even more. I believe that too, yeah. Um, but the thing is that out of those, that uh, that only about 6% of the known sites, 5 or 6%, have been dated, uh, properly dated. So what is it that allows us to be so confident with the data set? And how can we be so sure that we really have found the earliest sites for the dissemination of megalithic culture? Because it's not only the C14 date who gives us a date, it's also the architecture and the cultural material, you know? Uh archaeologists are uh, working since decades uh, without, so they have been working before without C14 dates uh, with graves and chronology, you know, and it's all, it's that what we call the relative chronology, you know, that you know also what is coming first, what is coming under, or if you have a settlement or a tell, you know, the lowest layer is older than the the basic assumption under this, so archaeologists have been building rough frameworks since they started to work yes know? and now the c14 date dating material uh, method is giving us the possibility to refine this even more so <clears throat> we know from a lot of graves also where we ain't got c14 dates over the material that they must belong for example to a phase between 4700 and 4200 because it's for example like in Brittany, ancient catholic material you know, and, and this, this is quite, it's quite clear. I mean, this is how we are archaeologists are working. You can imagine this like uh, somebody who's dealing with antiquities. They know also something is Biedermeyer or Classicism or something that can date it over 20 years, you know. We can probably yeah. also do this mm. with the style, you know. That's where the Bayesian analysis comes in, isn't it, really? That, uh, it's bringing everything together rather than just looking at numbers. Um, yes, 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 it is indeed. That, what you just said sort of um, begs a question because um, to have the passion for archaeology itself, to have the passion for the stones themselves, and to have the ability to turn your mind to be an expert in Bayesian <laughs> analysis, <laughs> etc., that is, it's quite a unique combination. I don't know. You know no. what I mean? The, the, the two, the, well, you have to have a deep understanding. You know, the, the passion has got to go, one has got to go uh, with, with the other. And so, you know, I really get, you know, that there's a, a nice, very nice confluence of, of skills and, and, 
and passions. You know, it's not it's not usual. I'm all, that's all I'm saying, Bettina. Well, that's certainly how it, <laughs> yes. how it appears to us. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. But you know, it's today archaeology is working with a lot of natural scientific methods. Yes. You can't really know them all because yeah. also to be a Bayesian statistician, you have to become an expert or to be yes. an ADNA specialist That's right. or to work with, uh, you know, there's so many methods we have today. So archaeologists need also a little bit to choose and pick up what they're doing for combinations. Yeah. yeah. But nevertheless, it, take, it takes something. It takes it takes a lot of work. I mean, neither Rupert or I are academics, and we take our hats off to you. Oh, thank <laughs> yes. you. That's nice. It's more than the most colleagues did the last years. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, here where I'm sitting, at least uh, in uh, in England, um, and we'd be fascinated to to find out how. Uh, the British Isles fit into all this, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, and you know obviously there aren't any particular answers, but I mean there are several avenues p- to pursue. But your research has shown that the the culture spread via maritime diffusion, and that Britain, if there were, you know if if it came to Britain, it from Brittany it came in a second phase, a later mm-hmm. phase. the green phase, what I call yeah it. yeah the second the green phase, phase. Right. yes. We'll have to we'll have to show you find a way of uh, getting your diagram into the show mm-hmm. notes, but we have the earliest dates at the moment. We have the earliest dates in Britain showing up in Scotland, and yet it seems the data shows that um, Coldrum, one of the Medway tombs, mm-hmm. yes. is the earliest known um, British mm-hmm. burial. Are, are we yes. misunderstanding something? No. Uh, have you got a take on this? Uh, apparent contradiction yeah you know this is a work who is also mostly done by my colleagues alex bayless and alice uh-huh. whittle they did this great book you know gathering time where they have been working on neolithic on enclosures but also uh, with Bayesian statistic on the megalithic tombs of uh, britain but also from, from ireland they also have uh, Big part that we're working with, and so I had a pre-work I could use also from mm. this part of Europe, and um, they went really deep into it. Also, they have been producing, I think, two and a half thousand dates nearly themselves. For also, yeah. it's worth. It's it's a very good book. It's from Oxbow, who is interested. Uh, I can just recommend it, and they're they're also really uh, pioneers in this Bayesian analysis. Also. Alex Bailey is from English Heritage, is doing this since decades. Yeah. And I still don't know why uh, people on the continent are doing so hard to adapt this method because it's a great. You know? and in okay. England, it's since over 20 years, uh, even from English Heritage, it's used. It's, used. it's <laughs> even mandatory to use it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. As I was mentioning um, earlier, uh, Rupert and I have been fascinated by the idea of trade since. Um, Going up to the axe factories in in, in Cumbria, uh, but Rupert, you have a you have a question about, well, uh, about yeah, trade. I, I, I do, and, and this is something that you know we have no evidence for this. It's just uh, it's just uh, lovely to uh, to discuss some of these things with uh, with people who have such a depth of experience in different ways. But Mike and I have have discussed so many times. What would have been the nature of trade? So, you know, what would you would you exchange twenty flint scrapers for an axe head, or 
how many pigs for a cow or how many axes for a cow or cows for an axe. Does it, do you have any thoughts on what exchanges may have been? People travelled such distances to exchange yes. goods, you know. You know, the thing is, uh, especially with Brittany, as I was standing on the beginning, I mean, we have the largest gathering of jadeite axes and greenstone artefacts in Europe mm. there, you know. Yes. And they must have been exchanging it with something. But yes. we don't mm. know yet what, mm. you know. Until now, it's something invisible. Because, yes. I mean, there is theories, uh, salt. I mean, my colleagues are now really much on, on slaves again. I'm not so fond of this. But um, we have to figure out what it was. I got a small idea, but I will not tell you yet. Because it's <laughs> 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 okay, that's fair. It's, we knew it's it. too wild, we... but you will get the paper soon as it's out. Uh, well, we knew. I, I knew you'd be thinking about this. I knew you'd been. <laughs> you would have been mulling on this question. Excellent. Yeah. Well, do you know what? One uh, of the things that uh, that I have to up... prove it first. You know, sorry, I have yeah. really to prove it first. It's yeah, really wide, well, wide speculation. And if I say this now, people think I'm crazy. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what? That's one of the lucky things for us is that because we are not uh, inside the academic circle that Mike and I can say stuff uh, <laughs> without uh, without desperately upsetting people. Uh, but it, it, well, it might uh, one upset of the people, but we won't get into trouble. <laughs> no, we won't, no, that's true. We won't get into trouble or lose our jobs. No. Uh, but one of the things, for example, that, uh, that certainly you know, made us um, think more on this was uh, was looking at fine. It was like there was a beautiful... Um, greenstone axe found at Grimes Graves, for example. Yeah. Now that greenstone axe head, beautiful polished thing, came from Cornwall. So um, find that in Grimes Graves, which is a, essentially a flint quarry. Um, that that's you know, that's one of the things that made us think. Well, you know, did somebody bring that beautiful? Uh, axe there to exchange for a you know a whole bag load of flint scrapers or you know that sort of thing it's very difficult to obviously it's impossible to actually uh, say for certain but um but clearly exchange was something that went on on a daily basis um, yes yes and much more than what we thought before as yeah, when I, I was a student i learned in the Neolithic, they were sitting in their villages. They did not move too much. They were <laughs> something like the picture, they're waiting yeah. if something is happening, but they yes. were not. There was really, it, it looks really, everything is indicating and pointing in the direction. There was really intercultural exchange. There were many transcultural encounters. And uh, I can also uh, follow this over the art, you know. My yes. last project here was, I'm also starting to write a lot of articles now about this. Um, was to analyze the megalithic art. So I was compiling yes. engravings and paintings from megalithic graves. So we have from several hundred graves in Europe. So we have uh, symbols and symbol combinations. And the interesting thing was, it was also here reflecting the same picture. We had really intercultural exchange. So symbols are repeating, combinations are repeating. And, I um, saw that, yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. It was so really it... great, you know, it was a great <clears> result. <throat> It's interesting also. Yes. And here again, I'm sorry, 
but the earliest megalithic art we have in Brittany, and it's yes. also the most complex, you know, we got yes. much more signs there and symbols than in the rest of Europe. So yeah. they had some kind of advantage there. Yeah. We have to figure out what it was and why they had it. Yeah. And yes. how they did it. This, is, this is a subject for another podcast, though, and a, and a, yes. a fascinating one. But I, I think the answers, you know, when we, if they come to light about the, the, the trade thing, has such an impact on our thinking about um, megalithic structures in the first place, because we are of the opinion that uh, the you know, particular mon monuments that we have that we looked at and, and visited stone circles uh, in particular and some henges were multi-purpose constructions uh, and of course following I think it's uh, Professor Toms who was the first to come up with the idea that uh, stone circles may have had something to do with axe trading who so, was this? Uh, um, Alexander Tom uh -huh, okay yeah, yeah. So we await with bated breath any further developments in the ideas of, <laughs> oh, of, I keep on. of trade. I keep on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh -huh. So, yeah, I think it's an, that um, is another important thing for people to take on board, that um, across the channel, in uh, well, more than across the channel, around the corner <laughs> in Brittany, um, that it is this extraordinary and um, cultural um, hotspot, if you like. If you've got so many artifacts, you've got so much artwork, and this is preceding Brodka. There was so much stuff um, uh, last year about uh, centering round the Ness of Brodka excavations mm -hmm. and the dates mm -hmm. they were finding there. Mm -hmm. That there was a whole three-part television program about how we should think about reversing our perspective on the British Isles and start looking from Orkney down yes. to the rest rather than from Wessex um, uh, upwards. But mm. what I'm trying to, you know, um, <clears throat> expand upon is shifting our mindset to really seriously take northwestern France as the source for so much of what we take mm. for granted. And I think also it's interesting how it spread it over Europe, how Europe was connected yes. already at this time, mm -hmm. and uh, British Isles and, uh, you know, Mm, Seems mm. there were not really borders, and it was easy to reach over boat, and mm, much easier mm. than what we thought. Yes. On a, I think also on a, you know, before I was learned, I teach at university. Maybe this all happened over stages. You know that they were trading to one point, and the next generation was trading it further. Yeah. No, this happened within yes. weeks. You know, within yes. a couple of days, partly. You know. Yes. If you see how many. People, it needs just to row uh, over the channel, or you know, you, you can come quite far distances. You know, yeah. you just have yeah. yes, manpower. Yeah. You can do it quite quick. I I have a um, a, a thought. My feeling for these uh, expansions, and I'm, I'd, I'd like your um, your take on, on this, it is that although they appear to take over the dates associated with them are over quite wide spans. But I have a feeling that the actual expansion would take place very quickly and then there'd be a period of stasis, i.e. I can't imagine these changes and this de disse these disseminations taking more than one or two uh, lifetimes. And then there, then there to be a stasis, you know, within which all the other dates fit. 
What do you mean with uh, later between? Um, you mean well, after the any the any uh, of the expansions um, that mm. um, that something would happen? One thing, one particular thing would happen. Something mm. would open up, or a new site would would open up, and the effects mm -hmm. of that would be relatively quick, rather than spread gradually over time. Mm -hmm. But you know, the thing is also, uh, if you know this first phase, uh, I'm writing now, they have been spreading within two, three hundred years. Yes. But this is what we know now on the basis of the data we have. If yeah. I got the possibility to produce more data, yes, our next yeah. project, I no, can I even narrow Absolutely. this more. You know, then yeah. I can write in a generation scale the whole story. Yeah. You know, Yes, yeah, so that's that is one of the limitations of radiocarbon is that uh, you can't get that granular. You can't get that focus down to. Yeah, I can. With a basic oh, you can. analyze, I can it come into okay. a gener generation scale. Yeah. I can come now today within twenty or fifty years. You know, so if I oh, come within twenty, you get the generation, and then you can really write history. But oh, for this, that's I need very to fascinating. I need to yeah, choose yeah. my own samples. Uh, I know yes. uh, now where the gaps are. <laughs> you know, I yeah. know where we're missing, uh, where we're missing dates, and I need to do just invest more work on it. And, uh, yes. Moment, uh, oh. there's a lot of grand application writing ongoing to get uh, yeah. more data financed. You know? Do you have a uh, an idea of time frame for for your for your next project? Then, when when do you expect to be publishing and uh, your follow up paper? I'm writing now some papers this year, and I'm still I'm already working on it. But soon, uh, too, also there's coming this chapter out from the Calais book. On this, I can yeah. recommend to anybody who is interested in trade because it's also so beautiful material. It's so nice, the speeds, yeah. yes. beautiful, if you and it's really interesting. Details of of that, then we could. Um, yeah. We could put the details on the page notes uh, on the website so people can access that book as well. When, when it, um, exactly. Yeah. So it will come yeah. out soon in Archeo yeah. Press. Okay, fantastic. And um, yes, and then there will come out a paper from me soon in the Oxford Archaeological Journal, but on um, Scandinavia, because we found here a painting uh, from the, could we document a painting? Uh, from the Neolithic, we know now it is, and it showed also as a hunter, maritime hunter gatherers who came from far away to do seasonal hunting. Oh, in Bowesland. So it's also very exciting and interesting thing. And it seems like they have been coming from Norway or Finland. Oh, wow. We call them now the elk boat people, people with boats with elk heads. Because uh, we have today um, methods uh, like the D stretch that you can. Uh, make details visible again who were invisible before. So I could really take out of the old known painting a lot oh, of details fantastic. on unknown motives. It's fantastic. And thank you, Steve. And then I'm working, of course, on the boat paper with all, you know, engravings, boat engravings, the new boat engravings they found in Brittany. Yes. Really to discuss yeah. also with some of my colleagues who are experts in this, what kind of boat technology were they using. Fabulous. And uh, there will come a couple of papers. I will send them all to you. This Thank is you. very exciting indeed. It is exciting. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Right, right up our street. <laughs> so, I mean, we've covered a fair amount of uh, a fair amount of of ground. Do you th is, is there anything that, that that we've missed out that that you want people to understand that we haven't uh, elucidated in 
uh, in asking our questions today, Bettina? I have to think. No, not really. I mean, do you, and you got more questions. If you ask me, I can answer. But uh... One of the questions that I wanted to ask you, but then we decided that it was probably going off at a tangent, uh, was that we know, for example, uh, that places like Nauth um, in Ireland, that um, the stones were reused, many of those stones were reused from an earlier site that we don't know anything about. We don't know where it was or what have you, but, uh, but particularly in the passageway that when they were reconstructing some of that, that they found that there was rock art on the back of the stones that had been made and then pushed, just reused for walls. So it was um, to ask you what your thoughts were about places like that, that you already have a site that is old, but we know that it it is, uh, it's now being, you know, stones from something still older has been, have been used uh, mm-hmm. in the building of it. So how far back, you know, I can't even think of a better way to articulate that, but it's just there's this period of time that we don't know what was happening other than the fact that it happened earlier and yet was still very sophisticated with the amount of art that uh, is involved and how you think that might fit with some of these uh, findings as well. You know, this is my big challenge with the megalithic art because it's quite common in Europe it's a little bit mean against me who has to do research on this because they were <laughs> reusing standing stones and they yes. were reusing they love to reuse and grave standing stones and especially you have to come again with britain yes <laughs> also in andalusia you know they, they used anthropomorphic stones and really standing stones who had engravings and i think this is really interesting because in some graves i have the feeling like they used Stones, they were like a narrative, uh, maybe produced by a lifetime by, from an individual or somebody, and then like like uh, um, buried memories, you know, um, inserted into a grave. And in all the graves I see, I know the art is coming from the earliest megalithic phase, and they have been using it for la- later later um, graves. And for me, this is also can be some kind of empowerment or in your grave, but it makes it especially challenging to date. It's a puzzle. But this is uh, this is my job, you know, to unpuzzle. <laughs> I mean, I tried to do this with the C14 dates. It was also a lot of puzzling, you know, to say, is this C14 date, the sample really coming from the right context? I so I had really to go deep into all, really to check and move around. And, and the same is with the art, you know. And uh, But... We know, for example, um, as a north, I don't know which uh, which engravings there are older, but I think they're not. I think they're still as so they're coming from megalithic or short pre-megalithic times. I don't think they're uh, like Paleolithic or mm-hmm. where they're connected to the megaliths. I think they have been using stones really connected to their society or to their cultures. Also, mm-hmm. at least I got indications for this. Uh, Mm. Now, okay, has this answered your question? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we'll just uh, have to wait for the paper. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, okay. 
<laughs> okay, this is not a paper about the reuse, you know. And then, something I want to tell, because yeah. this is also important. I mean, people have to know, I was struggling a lot, you know, many, many years. Especially yeah. if you go against convenient meaning, you know. Because if you need to do something like what we call a paradigm change, yes. you get a lot of uh, people who are against you. And I had yeah. so much fight with elderly archaeologists on conferences in the discussions after they tried really to what you're saying there is wrong and i knew i was right and mm. so i did not care what they were saying you can discuss with me and the thing is just really it's also important if you do something like this not to give up just and uh, academia is a tough place but yes. uh, take this mm. riddle, i was really struggling a lot so mm. um i'm happy i managed now to Convince one of the yes. journals like PNAS because they were really checking also the technical part. Yes, I think yes. everything is fine. And now it's really funny to see like some of the colleagues who were completely against me are writing now in the press. Oh, it's so nice what she did, and it's great, and we really <laughs> we just can confirm her results. And I think okay, five years ago I had a really heavy discussion with you at this conference, yelling at each other. <laughs> You know, it, it is uh, it is really funny. Yeah, well, nice that it came out good in the end, and you know, so many scientists and so many people are doing it, so working on stuff for years, and they never get acknowledged. That really, mm. their stuff also published in the right way. Yeah. So, yeah. Do not well, again, forget, it's really it's not only the work; it's also the struggle to get uh, people. Well, I I mean, it's a whole other subject, but, you know, strength of character and, um, you know, uh, and, and st sticking sticking to your guns. Yeah, as a phrase. And the passion for megaliths. I love stones. I love yeah. stones, so this is my thing. Uh, the, the passion for stones, but not only that, but taking the effort to go to the places. This is the mm. whole jumping off point for, for yeah. Rupert and I, as far as uh, our mm. thoughts on them. We have to, we had to um, actually be there. So mm. often what happens yeah. is you can read and read and read whatever there is in yes. whatever book, no matter how um, uh, esteemed the author may be. And you turn up at the site, the actual site, and you think, mm. what on earth is he talking about? This bears no mm. relationship. Mm to what I can mm. see on the ground. And we found that time after time after time yes. when we were yeah, making yeah. our, our yeah. film 10 years ago. So, yes, you're absolutely spot on that, you know, this, mm -hmm. that field work with an open mind. Yes, yes. But backed up by what you know, backed up by the data. Yeah, you know, but I have the same experience like you. Whenever I come mm. to a place, it's completely different than what I imagined from the literature. Yes. So it's so important to visit these places and I just can say to people go travel around in Europe. Mm -hmm. They're really at the most amazing spots also. But if you have the feeling for the landscape, if you see how they're orientated, the view and uh, how it's really situated and how it feels, it's completely different. Yeah. It's important uh, to, to see also, to see them. And I had the luck with um, the graduate school where I started. I did as the first part is my PhD also in this project. That they were financing a lot of these trips. It's also expensive yeah. to travel around, you know. And I had yeah. luck to take my family with, and had the luck to have uh, my husband who was helping for free. <laughs> 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 He's also an archaeologist, but he likes it. He's also crazy about megaliths. My but son you know was with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. 
it's funny you're, you're mentioning your your family because in your acknowledgements at the beginning of uh, <laughs> the, the book, this this stood out for me as you know not only. Uh, do you know your stuff as far as the data is concerned and then doing the you know as much work as you possibly can to to make sure that that is secure and lord knows how much that work that takes but also this this other side and you were acknowledging your family for helping you in the acknowledgements you've got i'm just going to quote you. you said for them no mountains were too high no gorge too steep, no wetland too dangerous, no brush too tight, no landowner too angry, no bull too wild, no grave too narrow, and no weather too bad. They always accompany me with enthusiasm and a map in their hands on the way to find the next megalith. Without their never-ending endurance, I'd never have managed. But it's that, I think, so that, 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 image will resonate with uh, with so many people so many of it was really i think i could really write a book about our experience what we had you know i mean the bulls bulls in scotland so, <laughs> <laughs> so many situations running yeah. and bulls after us well, I think uh, I th- I think that about uh, is time to to wrap up. But you know, thank you so much uh, for being with us, and um, yeah, it's been an a absolute great thrill, work. really. Uh, and uh, actually, I, I'm so excited about the work that you're continu- uh, continuing to do, and will come out in the future. I've no doubt that we'll be um, coming back to you to talk to us again at some time. Yeah, we'll in, certainly in look forward to yeah. telling all our uh, all our listeners about uh, about all of that because it's just that there is so much to learn, and that's the most exciting thing about all of it, isn't it? We just know yeah, that we true? know so little, really. Yeah, this is also what I used to say: prehistory we was actually completely different. <laughs> you have to be prepared. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you also very much, and uh, it was really fun. And uh, whenever you want to talk with me about megaliths, you know where I am. Now. <laughs> Wonderful. <Continue discussing. laughs> Wonderful. That's great. We will certainly thank be doing so it again. Okay. Thank you so much. Good. Thank you right. very Thanks much. Thanks very much. You take care. Bye bye. Yeah, bye you now. too. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening. Our aim is to produce the best megalithic content available anywhere. So if you enjoyed this program, and if you haven't done so already, please consider supporting us and helping us grow the channel and produce more megalithic content by becoming a patron of Standing With Stones. You can do so for less than a pound a month, but there are other levels of contribution that get you all manner of exclusives and specials available only to our Patreon supporters. Go to patreon.com forward slash standing with stones, browse the four reward levels and choose one that works for you. Thank you.